Part One, Chapter Seven of Burning Daylight by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This time the trail was easier. It was better packed, and they were not carrying mail against time. The day's run was shorter, and likewise the hours on trail. On his mail run, Daylight had played out three Indians, but his present partners knew that they must not be played out when they arrived at the Stewart bars, so they set a slower pace, and under this milder toil, where his companions nevertheless grew weary, Daylight recuperated and rested up. At Forty Mile they laid over two days for the sake of the dogs, and at Sixty Mile Daylight's team was left with the trader. Unlike Daylight, after the terrible run from Selkirk to Circle City, they had been unable to recuperate on the back trail. So the four men pulled on from Sixty Mile with a fresh team of dogs on Daylight's sled. The following night they camped in the cluster of islands at the mouth of the Stewart. Daylight talked of town sites, and though the others laughed at him, he staked the whole maze of high, wooded islands. Just supposing the big strike does come on the Stewart, he argued, maybe you all will be on it. And again, maybe you all won't. But I sure will. You'd all better reconsider and go in with me on it. But they were stubborn. You're as bad as Harper and Joe Ledoux, said Joe Hines. They're always at that game. You know the big flat just below the Klondike and under Moosehide Mountain? Well, the recorder at Forty Mile was telling me they staked that not a month ago. The Harper and Ledoux town site. <laughs> Elijah and Finn joined him in his laughter, but daylight was gravely in earnest. There she is, he cried. The hunch is working. It's in the air, I tell y'all. Why'd they all stake that big flat for, if they all didn't get the hunch? Wish I'd staked it. The regret in his voice was provocative, of a second burst of laughter. Laugh, y'all, laugh. That's what the trouble with y'all. Y'all think gold hunting is the only way to make a stake. But let me tell y'all that when the big strike sure does come, y'all do a little surface scratching and muckraking. But dang little y'all have to show for it. Y'all laugh at Quicksilver in the rifles, and think flower gold was manufactured by God Almighty for the express purpose of fooling suckers and chechecos. Nothing but coarse gold for y'all. That's your way. Not getting half of it out of the ground and losing into the tailings half of what y'all do get. But the men that land big will be them that stake the town sites, organize the trading companies, start the banks. Here the explosion of mirth drowned him out. Banks in Alaska? The idea of it was excruciating. Yep, and start the stock exchanges. Again they were convulsed. Joe Hines rolled over on his sleeping robe, holding his sides. After them will come the big mining sharks, that buy whole creeks where y'all have been scratching like a lot of picayune hens, and they all will go to hydraulicin in the summer and steam thawing in the winter. Steam thawing, 
That was the limit. Daylight was certainly exceeding himself in his consummate fun-making. Steam-thawing, where even wood-burning was an untried experiment, a dream in the air. Laugh, dang you, laugh. Why, your eyes ain't open yet. Y'all are a bunch of little mewing kittens. I'll tell y'all, if the strike comes on Klondike, Harper and Ledoux will be millionaires. And if it comes on Stewart, y'all watch the Ellum Harnish town site boom. In them days, when y'all come around making poor mouths, he heaved a sigh of resignation. Well, I suppose I'll have to give you all a grub steak or soup or something or other. Daylight had a vision. His scope had been rigidly limited, yet whatever he saw, he saw big. His mind was orderly, his imagination practical, and he never dreamed idly. When he superimposed a feverish metropolis on a waste of timbered, snow-covered flat, he predicted first the gold strike that made the city possible, and next he had an eye for steamboat landings, sawmill, and warehouse locations, and all the needs of a far northern mining city. But this, in turn, was the mere setting for something bigger, namely, the play of temperament. Opportunities swarmed in the streets and buildings, and human and economic relations of the city of his dream. It was a larger table for gambling. The sky was the limit, with the Southland on one side and the Aurora Borealis on the other. The play would be big, bigger than any Yukoner had ever imagined, and he, burning daylight, would see that he got in on that play. In the meantime, there was naught to show for it but to hunch. But it was coming. As he would stake his last ounce on a good poker hand, so he staked his life and effort on the hunch that the future held in store a big strike on the upper river. So he and his three companions, with dogs and sleds and snowshoes, toiled up the frozen breast of the steward, toiled on and through the white wilderness, where the unending stillness was never broken by the voices of men, the stroke of an axe, or the distant crack of a rifle. They alone moved through the vast and frozen quiet, little mites of earthmen, crawling their score of miles every day, melting the ice that they might have water to drink, camping in the snow at night, their wolf-dogs curled in frost-rimmed, hairy bunches, their eight snowshoes stuck on end in the snow beside the sleds. No sign of other men did they see, though once they passed a rude poling boat cached on a platform by the river bank. Whoever had cached it had never come back for it, and they wondered as they mushed on. Another time they chanced upon the site of an Indian village, but the Indians had disappeared, undoubtedly, they were on the higher reaches of the Stewart in pursuit of the moose herds. Two hundred miles up from the Yukon, they came upon what Elijah decided were the bars mentioned by Al Mayo. A permanent camp was made, their outfit of food cached on a high platform to keep it from the dogs, and they started work on the bars, cutting their way down the gravel through the rim of ice. It was a hard and simple life, breakfast over, and they were at work by the first gray light, and when night descended, 
They did their cooking and camp chores, smoked and yarned for a while, then rolled up in their sleeping robes and slept while the aurora borealis flamed overhead and the stars leaped and danced in the great cold. Their fare was monotonous. Sourdough bread, bacon, beans, and an occasional dish of rice cooked along with a handful of prunes. Fresh meat they failed to obtain. There was an unwanted absence of animal life. At rare intervals they chanced upon the trail of a snowshoe rabbit or an ermine, but in the main it seemed that all life had fled the land. It was a condition not unknown to them, for in all their experience, at one time or another, they had traveled one year through a region teeming with game, where, a year or two or three years later, no game at all would be found. Gold they found on the bars, but not in paying quantities. Elijah, while on a hunt for moose fifty miles away, had panned the surface gravel of a large creek and found good colors. They harnessed their dogs, and with light outfits, sledded to the place. Here, and possibly for the first time in the history of the Yukon, wood-burning in sinking a shaft was tried. It was Daylight's initiative. After clearing away the moss and grass, a fire of dry spruce was built. Six hours of burning thawed eight inches of muck. Their picks drove full depth into it, and when they had shoveled out, another fire was started. They worked early and late, excited over the success of the experiment. Six feet of frozen muck brought them to gravel, likewise frozen. Here, progress was slower. But they learned to handle their fires better, and were soon able to thaw five and six inches at a burning. Flower gold was in this gravel, and after two feet it gave away again to muck. At seventeen feet they struck a thin streak of gravel, and in it coarse gold, test pans running as high as six and eight dollars. Unfortunately, this streak of gravel was not more than an inch thick. Beneath it was more muck, tangled with the trunks of ancient trees and containing fossil bones of forgotten monsters. But gold they had found, coarse gold, and what more likely than that the big deposit would be found on bedrock. Down to bedrock they would go, if it were forty feet away. They divided into two shifts, working day and night, on two shafts, and the smoke of their burning rose continually. It was at this time that they ran short of beans, and that Elijah was dispatched to the main camp to bring up more grub. Elijah was one of the hard-bitten old-time travelers himself. The round trip was a hundred miles, but he promised to be back on the third day, one day going light, two days returning heavy. Instead, he arrived on the night of the second day. They had just gone to bed when they heard him coming. "'What in the hell's the matter now?' Henry Finn demanded, as the empty sled came into the circle of firelight, and as he noted Elijah's long, serious face was longer and even more serious. Joe Hines threw wood on the fire, and the three men, wrapped in their robes, huddled close to the warmth. Elijah's whiskered face was matted with ice, 
as were his eyebrows, so that, what of his fur garb, he looked like a New England caricature of Father Christmas. You recollect that big spruce that held up the corner of the cache next to the river, Elijah began. The disaster was quickly told. The big tree, with all the seeming of hardihood, promising to stand for centuries to come, had suffered from a hidden decay. In some way its rooted grip on the earth had weakened. The added burden of the cache and the winter snow had been too much for it. The balance it had so long maintained with the forces of its environment had been overthrown. It had toppled and crashed to the ground, wrecking the cache and, in turn, overthrowing the balance with environment that the four men and eleven dogs had been maintaining. Their supply of grub was gone. The wolverines had got into the wrecked cache, and what they had not eaten they had destroyed. They plumbed all the bacon and prunes and sugar and dog food, Elijah reported, and gosh darn my buttons if they didn't gnaw open the sacks and scatter the flour and beans and rice from Dan to Beersheba. I found empty sacks where they dragged them quarter of a mile away. Nobody spoke for a long minute. It was nothing less than a catastrophe. In the dead of an Arctic winter and in a game-abandoned land, to lose their grub. They were not panic-stricken, but they were busy looking the situation squarely in the face and considering. Joe Hines was the first to speak. We can pan the snow for the beans and rice, though there weren't more than eight or ten pounds of rice left. And somebody will have to take a team and pull for sixty mile, Daylight said next. I'll go, said Finn. They considered a while longer. But how are we going to feed the other team and three men till he gets back, Hines demanded. Only one thing to it was Elijah's contribution. You'll have to take the other team, Joe, and pull up the steward till you find them Indians. Then you can come back with a load of meat. You'll get here long before Henry can make it from Sixty Mile. And while you're gone, there'll only be daylight and me to feed, and we'll feed good and small. And in the morning, we'll all pull for the cash and pan snow to find what grub we've got. Daylight lay back as he spoke and rolled in his robe to sleep, then added, Better turn in for an early start. Two of you can take the dogs down. Elijah and me will skin out on both sides and see if we all can scare up a moose on the way down. End of Part 1 Chapter 7